It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. We've got blogs. Well, that's it. Got the map of the week. Adventures in art. Le Chadron Comatique. Oui, oui. It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. It's the Thought Eater RPG Show. Welcome to the Thought Eater Thought Pass. Oh, what is up, everybody? It is Froth here, Thought Eater Podcast, Thought Eater Blog, and yes, the sound quality. I'm having issues. I'm having issues. On my desktop, the way I was recording, it started having issues with the site, with the Anchor site. And so I started using Discord. But that took me twice as long because I was having to record through Discord, then export it, and blah, 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 blah. Then I switched to the laptop. Worked great for a few weeks. Now, all of a sudden, having issues. Thought it might be my headset, but the headset records fine when I'm doing the interviews on Discord. Just for some reason, doesn't work right with Anchor. So, until I can figure out another way to record these that doesn't make me have to do everything twice, I'm going to have to just record into my phone. Which is the old way I did it, which sounded fine, but now that I've got a new phone, which is a much better phone, the recordings don't sound as good. What can I tell you? I'll have to figure it out. Maybe buy another mic. But the weird thing is it was doing it even with just the inbuilt mic and the laptop. And, you know, it's just, it is what it is. But anyway... Welcome to the Hump Day RPG Show. I hope you're doing well. Hopefully you start to get used to the voice quality and you can live with it. Otherwise, I will continue to try to work on it. But I didn't want to just not have an episode. I already missed Friday's episode, but that was for a good reason. We went out of town. My grandmother, she's 91. She has basically been locked up due to COVID for over a year. We got to see her once last year when they allowed us to go out on a porch and see her. Couldn't touch her or anything. We're out on the porch. But then she injured herself and had a fracture of her ankle. Had to go to a rehab facility where we could not visit her. Now she is back from the rehab facility and Georgia has opened up to where you can actually go into retirement communities. So we finally were able to go see her, took my daughter, you know, and it was really good. But, uh, you know, so I, the Friday recording didn't happen. And, you know, I was a little worried about having enough stuff for a show, but I ended up having plenty. Cause I, you know, I've been paying attention to the blogs a little here and there, but, um, maybe not as obsessively as, as, as I normally do. But ended up, uh, I think we're going to have a good show, aside from maybe the, the sound of the voice. Have a great spe- uh, special guest. Tyler Crumrine does Possible Worlds 
games, they had a real popular Kickstarter for Kickstarter uh, for Zine Quest 2 last year, Beak, Feather, and Bone. And they have a new Kickstarter going, the Possible Worlds subscription box. So they come by and join Zine Club, and it's a good conversation. So I've got that coming up for you. But first, I've got a couple things, a couple call-ins. First, we got one from Jason, and I forget what Jason was calling about. Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. He's forgotten more. No. Yeah, he's forgotten. <laughs> he's forgotten more about RPGs than Froth may ever learn. Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I believe he's calling about final topic from last week. And then I got a call from Goblin's Henchman, who's calling in about the topic of innovation and in gaming that we were talking about. So let's listen to these. Hey, Jason here. Great show this past Wednesday. Uh, yeah, I would love to see 5e creators and, and others band together to get out from under the thumb of the DMs Guild. That'd be some really cool stuff. As far as your end segment, yeah, definitely split the party. Ha ha ha, says the evil DM. No, seriously. And with modern technology and online gaming, it's so much easier. With VTTs, it's easy enough to, you know, split the party and have separate screens for the you know the two groups and you can have separate chat rooms so you know you can hop hop in one chat room talk to one group hop in the other talk to the other so they don't even have to pretend not to worry about the meta knowledge they just won't hear when you're talking to the different groups so yeah modern technology it's easier to do than ever um so yeah that's about it keep up the great work hi froth Goblin Senchman here. So this is just a kind of almost a response to your call out for innovation in gaming um, and ideas of where it's going. So several years ago now, I was struggling with the idea of how do you present module information in a super compact fashion? Um, and I came up with this idea, which I'll get back to, but what I don't understand is why why this 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 sort of crude version that I came up with isn't basically done now. So the idea is that you have the map for the module um, and then when you touch on or click on the icon or the room the information just pops up. So you know you click on route 12 and it pops up with the room description and then there might be an icon next to it with a monster you press it and it tells you about the monster. So essentially the DM is running off one page where all the notes and rooms are just buried in essentially kind of like hyperlinks. Now this must be doable in Adobe. There must be layers or something where you can do this, you know, so you can, um, you know, take, you know, a large module and just boil it down to one page and it'd be so easy to run because um, everything just pops up and then when you click away, it drops away. Now, because I'm not an IT guy and, and frankly, um, you know, don't have all the Adobe whistles and bangs and know how that works. Um, the way I actually ended up executing this idea as, a, as if you like, a test case was using Microsoft Excel. Now, sounds a bit <laughs> sounds a bit obtuse, but um, Microsoft Excel is actually very um, very good at um, doing sort of programming for people who don't know how to program. So anyway, cut long story long story short, I basically inserted the map into Excel as a background, and then overlaid it with a grid, and then in Excel, you can do pop-ups. So you can then, you know, have the map in the background and when you hover over square 12, you know, up pops the room description. So for example, there was a, a collaborative dungeon written by 
well, a clever dungeon organised by Michael Prescott called The Halls Untoward, which has something like 65 rooms or something in it. Um, and uh, I did that as one of these Excel dungeons and got the whole thing down on one page. So, um, and I, I did, for example, the same thing with Caves of Chaos. I did a map, took a, took an open source map, mapped over a grid and then and put all every single room uh, encounter with a with one of these pop-up squares now um, for various reasons I didn't populate the whole thing uh, I didn't want to uh, antagonize anyone <laughs> who owned the IP there but um, so I only did a few as an example but anyone could go through and, and do that if they wanted to and make their own notes so that's what I think is going to happen it's going to be running dungeons off PDFs or some similar technology where you have a, simply one page with everything on it and then as you click the things you need they just pop up and you can minimize them when you don't need them again okay cheers bye now i remember what jason was calling about and that kind of ties into the innovation in gaming using online tools and yes Goblin's Henchman was some interesting stuff there. And so you will see under the intro tab a video that they uploaded showing off the technique, the Excel adventure technique. And it got me thinking about PDFs that I may have seen like that. And I believe Rob Conley, when for the, uh, the ill-fated city-state of the Invincible Overlord judges guild kickstarter that i'm not sure if it ever ever happened i know rob finished the maps that they were doing rob conley from bat in the attic um anyway that's a long story but there was a kickstarter some years ago to reboot or do a new edition of an old judges guild property but i know they finished the maps and i believe on their city state maps it has like a layered PDF where you can actually hover over any of the, you know, dozens and dozens of shops and everything, and it will show you the text, uh, which is really cool. And so it, it's fitting that Goblin's henchmen called in about that because they're always thinking outside the box, doing something different. So I've got that video up um, of them um, showing off the technique that they were talking about uh, and also a recent post from them <clears throat> that brought back some memories talking about g-day going back to the google plus days uh just a great social media site for gaming that is no longer with us and they posted up a like a little cartoon meme that you know from that time when when google plus died I've still not found any kind of great <clears throat> replacement for it. And what it really was, if uh, if anybody has heard about the G Plus days and was never a part of it, it was just really the posting format that made it that made it really good. It was kind of the best combination of all the different social media sites that worked into letting posts be kind of almost like mini blog posts. And um, it was just really easy to kind of friend people, share people, comment on each other's posts. There were a lot of really good gaming groups. But um, 
yeah, it's uh, it's it's long gone now, long gone. Other stuff. Oh, and I guess I should mention this. What are you even listening to if you're a first-time listener? I was so caught up talking about my mic troubles, but Hump Day RPG Show, weekly show, talking about cool DIY RPG stuff that I spotted over the week, blog scenes, maps, interviews, all kinds of stuff. Everything that I talk about on the podcast, I put up over at the Thought Eater blog. It's all in order, so if you hear something cool, it's all over there. You don't need to try to write down a link or remember it or whatever, so... Just Google Thought Eater blog, you'll find it. So anyway, this stuff is all under the intro tab over at the Thought Eater blog. And I got a message from, uh, not a voice message though, from Joe Richter from the Hindsightless and Wheel or Woe podcasts. And they had been on a while back talking about accessibility and gaming. Um, Joe's blind and was talking to me about you know, stuff that people can do to make their products more accessible and everything else. Anyway, Joe sent me a, a link from Devin Rue, who's a talented cartographer. I believe they do all the critical role mapping, or at least a lot of it. And it was a post called Blind and Visually Impaired Characters. How to play them, uh, some tips on playing blind and visually impaired characters. Joe said some of the advice was good, some they didn't agree with, but he mentioned it to me anyway, so I thought I'd post that up. Thought I'd post it up. Um, and then there is a, I always give a shout out to new bloggers when I spot a new blog. Cthonostone, Cthonstone, I guess it's Cthonstone, like Cthulhu. Cthonstone Games, Cthonstone.blogspot.com. Uh, John Stone blogging over there and they just started blogging in March, 2021. So I always like to give a shout out to new bloggers, shout out to John Stone. Welcome to the blogosphere. I guess I'll mention my fledgling Patreon as well. If you listen to these shows and you enjoy them, if you're liking them, if you like the effort that I'm putting into this week after week doing the interviews, scraping, finding all this stuff, putting it up for you. Join the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash thought eater. It's only a dollar a month. There is a dollar a month tier that you can join. Throw a dollar in the tip jar if you like what you're hearing. I would appreciate it. All right, let's do some maps. Maps of the week. All right, so I don't think I've mentioned this site before. I wanted to give them a shout-out. I can't remember if I have or haven't. Osrin's Oddments. Osrin's Oddments. Osrin's Oddments.com. And they do stuff for 5th edition. And what they'll usually do, and that's like this post, Desert Path Battle Map plus 8 Encounters, 6 New Creatures. They'll come up with a map put up the map and then they, they give you some encounter ideas and then add in some new monsters and stuff like this. And they do this, uh, it seems pretty frequently, maybe almost weekly. And so it's kind of like a cool site to, uh, if you're into 5e, go grab a map, get some encounter ideas, maybe have enough for a little adventure. So anyway, this one was, you know, like a little path through a desert and a bunch of different ideas. And like I say, some new monsters and stuff. So shout out, to Osrin's Oddments, 
cool blog for people to check out, especially if you're into 5e. This was a neat post at the Wandering Gamist blog. John over there, wanderinggamist.blogspot.com, BH2 and Lost Secrets of the Old Hex Mappers. And they're talking about um, Boot Hill um, Adventure number two, Lost Conquistador Mine, which incidentally, I talked about well over a year ago when I was talking about Zeb Cook's Greatest hits, top adventures from Zeb Cook. This is one that's kind of just like the Lost Conquistador Mine is kind of lost in the shuffle. There's not a lot of Boot Hill action going on, but it's a great adventure, and it's one that for any old West game I, I think would be uh, really good to use. Zeb Cook was one of the great, you know, did, did a lot of great adventures back in the day. One of the great TSR adventure designers. Um, up there with the best. Um, so, anyway, they talk about the hex map featured in that adventure and some of the interesting and novel things that they did that uh, that Zeb Cook did um, involving visibility and just like the hex map in general. So it's a, it's a it's an interesting post about an interesting hex map. And so why don't you go over and check that out. That's at wanderinggamus.blogspot.com. Might give you some ideas for your game. And then finally, this was from over on Twitter. Prismatic Waste. Or Prismatic Wasteland from the Prismatic Waste blog. Did I say that right? They're from the Prismatic Wasteland blog, but their Twitter handle is Prismatic Waste. I've mentioned them before on the blogging side of things, but this was an interesting tweet that I saw. And they're talking about improvising a mega dungeon using a shopping mall map. You know those shopping mall maps? You might, <laughs> depending on your age, you might not know. Yeah, do people? I know people are, our, our mall here in Athens at least is dying slash dead. Uh, barely any stores left in it, but certainly... In my youth, back in the heyday of the malls, everybody remembers these maps where you go and you look and it's like you are here and it shows everything on your floor, sometimes kind of color coded. And then it'll show, you know, even the next floor, how they link together. So they had these interesting ideas about improvising a mega dungeon or any kind of dungeon by using, you know, just Googling and finding a map of a shopping mall. Or you could just really do a lot of different things with this. Just get an idea for a, a, a dungeon or adventure layout or whatever. They have some ideas about kind of riffing off of the names of the shops to think about what they might be and stuff. So anyway, I linked to that Twitter post because I thought it was just a really inventive and cool idea. And I put up the map that they were using of the Sawgrass Mills uh, Mall they can kind of give you an idea of what you're looking at. And it would actually make for an interesting dungeon layout. So check it out. Zine Club. All right. So I am excited to have joining the program today, Tyler Crumrine of Possible Worlds RPG Publishing. You might know Tyler's previous work from last year's Zine Quest, the runaway hit Beak, Feather, and Bone. 
and they now have a current Kickstarter project going, Possible Worlds, which is an interesting looking project that includes multiple games in a subscription box format. Tyler, welcome to the club. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here, especially uh, both of us being in such great company of having work of Evelyn's adorning our products. I noticed that when I was kind of researching and stuff for the interview, I looked through your Kickstarter page and I saw that one of the games, at least the cover, is uh, an Evelyn M original. So that kind of certainly piqued my curiosity. Yeah, the interior as well for each of the the games in the bundle. Um, I'm committed to having a different independent artist doing all the artwork for the cover and throughout. So yeah, Evelyn's one of the greats. So of course, when I was reaching out to folks uh, to tap for art, uh, she was one of the first that I reached out to. And so I, when I saw the the Thought Eater platypus, uh, I, I knew that I was in good company. I've always been a huge fan of Evelyn's ever since I first saw her work. It just really appealed to me, everything about it. And so I've just been a longtime supporter and I'm always interested in, in what she's doing. So, um, and then I, you know, I've tried to commission her whenever possible and, and, and use her art uh, around my stuff. So um, I definitely get the appeal. So. And it looked like, a, uh, we'll get more into it in, in a bit, but it looked like a lot of interesting artists, um, you know, that you're using for that project. So uh, we'll definitely talk about that. But I always like to ask people first about their zine origin story. So was it RPG zines or something else? It was actually the Pittsburgh Zine Fair. So I'm from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we have a yearly zine fair uh, here in the city, usually it's like in an old um, like gymnasium or something. Uh, it's been in like church conference hall type stuff, uh, really just wherever the organizers can get space. And it started as this like tiny thing that has grown and grown each year. And I loved going to the zine fair because I was um, most of my career has been as a theater professional, uh, but I always have really enjoyed other artists, other artistic forms of expression. And the zine fair was the best place to go and find like the real like feet on the ground, people making art for the passion of making art in Pittsburgh. Uh, and so even though I wasn't making zines myself, I loved just going and spending, you know, well over an hour there looking at all the people that were tabling and the zines that they had. Um, and that's how I kind of became familiar with the concept of zines was like this kind of extension of the arts community and like this, you know, burgeoning love for DIY culture. And there were a couple of RPG zines that I discovered there. Um, Haunted Meat, uh, Michael Paisano, uh, he is, he recently had um, two zine quest projects, both through Exalted Funeral um, that, that look really, really great. But I found his RPG work at a zine fair before I was ever part of zine culture. And I just was like, oh, it's so cool that this RPG I can actually afford as opposed uh, to well. having to get, you know, like three separate $40 tomes to play something with my friends. With a title like Haunted Meat, I mean... Yeah, let's, no, let's it's, be real. it's wonderful. But it was after that that I started um, 
interacting with the DIY scene more. Um, I had been doing a lot of freelance editing for fiction writers, for, for poetry, um, with my English literary background. And I got connected with World Champ Game Co., uh, Adam Voss, and they had a collection that they were putting up for their first zine quest, and they were looking for an editor on it. Uh, we had met up at a gaming convention, uh, really hit it off, and I edited their first zine quest project. Uh, so that was really what kind of thrust me into zine quest culture. Uh, it wasn't until the second year that I, you know, I had been working on games for a long time just in the background is like essentially gamifying GM prep for myself so that it wasn't miserable. Um, and when the opportunity came up to put up like a 30 page ish game and that, you know, be encouraged and not frowned upon, um, I seized it and I put out Beak, Feather, and Bone, fully expecting it to maybe hit its $1,000 goal. And it just really surprised me. And I'm glad that it did, because when the pandemic hit and all of my theater work disappeared, suddenly RPG design became my full-time job. Uh, and I'm, I've been super grateful to the scene since, because it's what like paid my rent for the last year. And I'm not sure how I would have otherwise. Uh, that That is really interesting because, you know, so many creative endeavors and you know, i played music you know, for long stretches of my you know i still play but i was in bands and everything most of my life and you know so many things got just completely wiped out um it's just fortuitous that you were able to rely at least partially on on games and and so i mean that's kind of don't ever want to say anything's a blessing from a global pandemic i guess but yeah, that still is somewhat of a uh, somewhat of a of a blessing, I suppose. Um, Beak yeah, feather and, and I bone. Think in, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that it's, you know, I think I just lucked out in a lot of ways too. You know, there are a lot of design decisions that I could have made that would have made uh, my game much harder to run online. Um, or even the fact that it is a game that can be viably played with one or two players meant that folks could actually play it within the pods that they had uh, in their homes. And so I, I don't think that, like, I wouldn't, you know, wish the pandemic on, you know, anyone. And I don't think that it's anything about it is worth the, the you know, the global cost that it's had on human lives. But in terms of, the ways that we've seen the RPG community, you know, kind of like rally around uh, its own during this time of like extreme difficulty. Uh, I'm grateful that I was able to like make asks of people uh, over the last year, you know, nothing like running uh, GoFundMe, but even just, you know, to keep putting pings out into the world saying like, if you, have money to spend on leisure, would you consider spending it on me? And for people to answer that call is something that I'm extremely, extremely grateful for. I really love solo zines or, you know, it, it just seems to kind of fit the format, something you can do on your own when you're on a trip, uh, when you're, you know, 
just have a day to yourself or an afternoon to yourself. Tell me a little bit for people that don't know what Beak, Feather and Bone is all about. I mean, it had well over, you know, 1500 backers and did really, really well. What is the story with it? How does it work? Yeah, so you start with a unlabeled map. So you have a map in front of you. I provide one with the game of like a city in the middle of a crater. Uh, but you can just as easily randomly generate a map online or use any of the variety of free maps that are shouted out each week on this show. Um, but you take an unlabeled map and then you take a deck of cards and everyone who's playing the game is assigned a community. Um, so that community might be the wizards or the miners or the mercenaries, what have you. And you're welcome to invent your own. On your turn, you draw a card and say it's the six of diamonds. Diamonds says that uh, the building that you label on the map has to serve a financial purpose for your community. So if your community is the wizards and you get the six of diamonds, then you look at the map and you're like, okay, this building here looks kind of like an observatory. So maybe like the wizards run the observatory and they rent it out to, you know, to different people who look to the stars for like um, omens of the future. Or maybe they say like, hey, come and you come up here and we'll, um, we'll tell your future to the stars and like you just have to pay, you know, monthly fee to get your fortune read every week. Um, so the way that you reach that kind of world building is we give you three simple prompts. You're asked to describe the building's beak, its feather, and its bone. The beak is what do people say about the building? So we got this tower and maybe people on the street, if you were to ask an NPC about it, they would say like, oh, don't go over there. They, you know, they'll, they'll bleed you dry. Um, the feather is what does it look like? So maybe you describe it as like a tower with like, uh, moss covering the sides and uh, sparks periodically coming out of the windows. And the bone is what does it look like on the inside or what's its true purpose? Um, so it could be something along the lines of on the inside, there's a spiral staircase that leads up to a telescope. Or you could say like the true purpose is these wither these wizards can't see the future and they're real. They really are just, you know, pulling a con on people. Um, and once you've done that, it will go to the next player's turn. They draw a card and they similarly describe a different building on the map um, as it relates to their faction. And at the end of the game, the total number of the score of all the cards you've drawn is added up for each player. And the one with the highest score, their faction is in control of the city uh, as of the end of the game. Uh, and the idea here is that it is gamifying GM prep in a way that you have multiple players all coming together to kind of like decide what is the flavor of this city, what kind of, you know, factions and, you know, powers are at play here. But also I've found that when I take these maps and run them later on, if I run them later on, because it's also just a fun experience in itself. But when I run them later on, if the players were a part of creating the city with me, you know, it, doesn't matter if we, you know, didn't answer every single question about every single building in the city. Right away, they're going to want to go and interact with that wizard's tower because they have like an idea of what's going on here and because they played a part in creating it, meaning they're that much more invested in actually incorporating it into play. I love it. I love it. 
And it sounds like it reminds me in some ways of the world building I did with my daughter when she was kind of too young to really completely understand all the ins and outs of like game rules and combat and everything. But we were still kind of world building and stuff together. And so it, it, I think that sounds like it's something that could be fun with kids and stuff too. And I love the, the, uh, the card prompts and everything else. So that's really awesome. Yeah, the most important playtesting I did of the game was playing it with my younger brother. And I shout this out on the Kickstarter page because it kind of informs my entire design ethos. But I wanted to make sure that it was a game that my little brother, who has never played an RPG I haven't handed him, and who doesn't own any of his own books or any like dice above a D6, that he was able to, you know, one, understand the game, and two, like, just be the good storyteller that he is, you know, with as long as I gave him like simple, specific prompts that got him started. Um, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do with Beak, Feather, and Bone. What I'm trying to do with these other games is make experiences that are very welcoming to people that are new to the hobby, but also have enough like nuggets of design wisdom in them that even if, you know, you don't need any hand-holding as far as playing this RPG. Hopefully you find something that it's doing that other games don't do that either is going to be engaging enough for you to play it on its own or that you're going to be able to hack this mechanic into your ongoing campaign. You know, like one of the games in my subscription bundle recreates uh, dating sim computer games. Um, but there's no reason why you couldn't take the mechanics out of it and like add a one session, like, you know, dating subplot to your D&D 5e campaign. You know, if you're familiar enough with how RPGs work to know how to lift and, you know, tweak those things as needed. Well, that should be one of the first things people learn, I, I, I hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is to just kind of, what am I going to ignore out of this book and what am I going to add? But, but so I'll mention, I've mentioned it before uh, recently, but for listeners, there is a system reference document recently done for Beak, Feather, and Bone so people can build their own stuff with it. So that's awesome. Let's talk about possible worlds. So I love the, first of all, format of the games for this they're spiral bound i love anything spiral bound but they're spiral bound at the top almost like um some notebooks or i can't remember if mad libs were done like that when i was little um, i think like the the good ones were like the, the fancy road trip editions so i love the format kind of smaller like a notebook you know with the the spiral bound at the top and it looks like you're going to do these six games that will come out digitally. And then after they've all kind of been released, you're going to send out like a, a cool box with all the games boxed in it. Is that the idea? Yeah. So a lot of what I'm modeling this after is actually um, theater subscriptions. So the way a lot of theaters work is they announce their season of plays and they hold a subscription campaign period where they will say like, hey, if you like how our season looks, you know, for this period of time, you're able to buy just a bundle of all six shows and you get a discount. You know, you're saving money on each show. And so it's a larger investment up front, 
But if someone looks at it and they trust the quality of their work enough and they trust their curation enough, they're willing to say like, okay, yeah, it's worth it for me to save some money now because I'll probably be buying tickets to each of these later anyway. And so what that does is you have a flashpoint period during your like fiscal year where you are getting your operating budget, you know, depending on how many subscriptions you sell, you know, that's money that's going to, you know, last the entire season. And it's also money that reflects the people who are most interested in your product, most interested in what you have to offer. And then as shows come and go, you still do single ticket sales. Um, but a lot of that money isn't going to really move the needle on like, you know, the quality of life that you've planned for yourself for the year or the budgeting that you've done of like, all right, this is the minimum that we need to hit in order to pay all of our employees and all of our collaborators. So as I am planning this uh, Kickstarter subscription, part of it is just knowing that I can't do ZineQuest forever. You know, if I want making games to continue to be my full-time job uh it is hard to you know to get above a certain point if the most reasonable amount you can ask for the product you're selling is ten dollars you know uh, but i also don't want to write the 300 page book so if i want to have a backer level that is yeah, i don't you know, i don't want fifty dollars I don't want to read the 300 page book. So that's yeah. good. Yeah. That's good. But part of it is like, you know, part of it is me saying, like, what is a sustainable way that I can, you know, deliver this? Um, and another part of it is just knowing that, like, I want to keep writing these short games, you know, because that's what I enjoy. That's what I feel like I'm good at. How can I create a way to do that that is sustainable? So if someone backs at the you know digital subscription for $25, they're going to get a game at the top of each month for six months in a digital version. If they bump their pledge up to $50, then at the end of that six months on the seventh or eighth month, they'll also get the box set with the physical editions so that I'm only shipping it once and I'm not charging people for shipping six times. But then once all of that is over, you know, then I have a catalog of individual physical copies of these six games, digital copies of these six games that if people, you know, aren't the diehards that are like interested in going all in up front and like taking a bet on the subscription for a potential discount, they'll also have the opportunity to buy these games piecemeal later. I like that because you're thinking about the, you know, the business, obviously you're not just throwing it into the void and hoping it makes money. I mean, your site looks really nice too. And obviously you're supplementing that with additional services with, um, with the editing and, and other stuff. So um, I, I, I think you're, you know, hopefully on your way and these games, the, we already talked about a little bit about the dating simulation one, but a lot of these, um, Kind of hooks and, and and ideas for the games seem interesting. Um, like, uh, you want to talk about any of them? Like, Wishlist looks really cool. Yeah, I think that Wishlist is the game that will appeal most to folks who are familiar with like campaign style uh, RPGs, uh, even like OSR type stuff. Um, a lot of what Wishlist does is it communicates the uh, conflict resolution mechanic that I've come up with. Uh, and it also um, gives this way of running sessions 
that I really came up with in the last year, uh, running kind of West Marches style campaigns on Discord uh, where people could pop in and out, uh, where each session has like distinct goals um, that players are able to pick and choose between. Uh, and, you know, the goals that they don't follow up on uh, become more serious over time. Uh, so those are two of like the nugget things that can be taken from this game and applied to, you know, other like rules light and OSR and uh, fantasy campaign style things. But the world building part of it that's interesting to me and something that informs this simple conflict resolution system is that Wishless is a game that presupposes that at some point in the world of this game, um, every single person on the planet was granted three wishes. And at the point that you are playing, almost everyone has used all three of their wishes, including your players. So during player character creation, you define like what were your three wishes? You know, were they all practical? Was one accidental? You know, was one like a monkey's paw type thing where you thought you were making one wish, but it turned out to be something else? Um, and then the adventure structure of the game is that you are trying to seek out people in the setting that potentially have unused wishes because you know basically everyone was given the most powerful item in the game and so it made it that everyone is on the same power level except for these people who have the most valuable thing in the world which is like potential wishes um and yeah it's it's a ton of fun it really is informed by my own tendency in games to like collect the powerful items and never use them. Uh, so I created a game that was like, well, what if you weren't allowed to do that? What if like session one, you were forced to use your most powerful items and then get creative with what that means? I like the, the concept of everybody having the wishes and having used them too, because you can go so many different directions. Like it could be whimsical and lighthearted, but it could also be very, you know, Cronenberg or David Lynch, you know, nightmarish or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, depending on what what people, you know, wished for and what kind more, I guess, more importantly, what kinds of people there are in the world and what kind of things they might wish for. So depending on the table, you know, that could be there could be a really wide variety there. I guess that's true for a lot of games, but especially when you're talking about being able to wish for something and to get it so yeah part of the the world building that i've included is that uh like at the crux moment when this event happened a lot of the wishes that were made were just counter wishes you know because like someone in your immediate area would wish for some like huge you know thing that gave them a gigantic advantage over their peers and so their peers respond by making a wish that like negates that first person's wish. Um, so that's part of how in this setting, like wishes got used so quickly. Um, and it's only a select few people that like had the wherewithal to like, actually, I'm just, I'm going to save my third. I'm not going to use it just yet. I love it. Well, I hope it does well for you. It looks like um, it's just about to fun with plenty of time left. So I'm sure it's going to fun, but Hopefully, uh, obviously, I have links up to, to put more eyes on it. Really interesting idea, and um, the production quality looks great. The artists that you have working on it looks great. So I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy for you, Tyler. It looks like a really cool project. 
Thanks. Yeah, folks can head to ttrpg.link/pw to check out the campaign. And yeah, even though it thankfully knock on wood, it does look like we're going to fund at this point. Uh, but really, a lot of what this Kickstarter is doing is helping me to plan for the next year, season, and really career pivot of my life. Uh, I've been lucky that I've been able to kind of be a full-time game designer by default for the last year. But it also left me with a lot of tax liabilities because I wasn't planning on that. I wasn't planning <laughs> on the success of Beak, Feather, and Bone. Um, and so now th what this Kickstarter is and what I've budgeted for is a way to go legit. And every penny helps uh, as far as like getting me to a place where not only is this sustainable, but also where I'm able to like pull myself out of the subscription in future years and make it so like three of the games for a bundle are mine, but the other three are from early and mid-career designers who could use that like curator to really help advocate for their work in the world. Well, I think the trick really at this point, I mean, the ideas are cool. Like I say, the, the layout production design is cool. It's just trying to get it in front of as many people's faces as possible um, so that more people have a chance to buy it. And I guess that can always be the trickiest part. Yeah. Well, that's why I appreciate you and appreciate you letting me uh, hop on the show. And, you know, and also just for the work that you do for so many other creators, you know, whether it's uh, highlighting free work or, you know, pointing folks towards uh, people who are trying to, you know, do real cool stuff in the scene. Well, I appreciate that. I, I'm all about it. You know, that's what I enjoy doing. So um, when I started podcasting, I was kind of trying to copy or emulate or, you know, other podcasts going and it just didn't, didn't click. It didn't work. So I, I ended up going and, you know, ended up doing, what felt right to me, which is just kind of how I've always been. I've always was the person like trying to show music to somebody or show somebody a book, you know, not in an annoying way, but trying to just like put more eyes on cool stuff. And I realized that uh, every week I'm seeing constant bloggers, people, people making cool projects and, and the stuff just goes by so fast that, you know, it's almost like, people are just throwing it out there and it's not getting seen or talked about or looked at. And so it just, uh, was kind of my, uh, cozy little corner of, of geekdom that I fell into. So, all right. So are you ready for the questions three? Yes, I, I am prepared. Okay. Question number one, what makes zines so magical? Uh, I think it is the fact that they could ostensibly be made of anything. Uh, as long as you, you bind them together in the middle or even just throw a rubber band around them, you know, make it from napkins, make it from sheepskin, make it from paper, what have you, you know, anything's a zine as long as you say it's a zine and you hand it to someone and say, read my zine. Just don't make it uh, out of lettuce and try to <laughs> ship it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I do. would not do. go so far as say I, I would not appreciate a lettuce zine if someone handed it to me as like, you know, eat after reading, you know. I actually, I actually, I need to, you know, move to protect my copyright on that because I think <laughs> that, that 
I think we'll start seeing those now. But anyway, yeah. all right. So question two, what is something you learned making zines that you wish you knew when you started? I think a big thing that I learned um, through trial and error of uh, printing zines at home and making prototype zines and things like that is keep your zine a reasonable page length. Uh, keep it within that kind of like 30 page sweet spot. If it's getting up to 50 or something, probably should be a perfect bound book uh, because at a certain point, staples just don't work. Uh, and at a certain point, you know, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to be able to fold that sucker closed. So better to have a zine be zine length than take a book length project and try and uh, shove it into a zine, a zine shaped hole. And finally, the toughest of the questions three, do you have a favorite zine? Oh, man, I have an entire shelf of them. Uh, it's very difficult. Um, I think I would say, though, uh, maybe Fruit of Law by Eli Seitz. Uh, it is a game that you play through uh, cutting open uh, pomegranate and then using the seeds for storytelling and resolution. And it's also just like it's a little zine. You know, it's not the the half page size. It's just a, a tiny little guy that you could, you know, fit in your pocket. And I think it's games like that that are just kind of like do something really interesting in a short uh, amount of pages and in like a cool little form factor. Uh, that really inspired like the kind of games that I'm making now. Uh, folks were doing it in zines far before I had the idea to slap a spiral bound on it. And it's rich in antioxidants. Yeah, exactly. You know, you got it. You got it. Got it. Good in, good out. You know, next, next up, lettuce. <laughs> All right. Well, Tyler Crumrine from Possible Worlds. It's possibleworldsgames.com. I will have links up on the blog for not only their new Kickstarter, Possible Worlds, which really looks great, but also, um, their itch page with beak, feather, and bone, the SRD, all that good stuff. So, Tyler, thank you so much. Thank you. This was an absolute blast, and I really appreciate you having me on. All right. So, yeah, great to have Tyler on the show. I've got, uh, like I mentioned, I've got links up to the Kickstarter for the Possible Worlds box set. Their, their Tyler's Possible Worlds game site, as well as their itch page where you can check out Beak, Feather, and Bone, the SRD, and all that good stuff. So thanks again to Tyler coming by. And I noticed that the Kickstarter has now funded, so great job. So anyway, go and check that out. A couple more zine things for y'all to check out. There is a new issue of the Cepheus Journal. This is a traveler zine. The new issue of the Cepheus Journal number five is available for a free download. Don't miss this one. It's at the Zodani base, zodani.space. Great zine, great time to be alive if you are a Traveler fan. Uh, really, any sci-fi you can use a lot of these for. I mean, uh, a lot of it's flavor and fluff. and But anyway, uh, a, a great, great um, 
um, zine for the Cepheus engine, which is basically like a, um, you know, retro clone of Traveler. So check that out. Then Pookie UK over the re reviews from Rulier blog, rulierreviews.blogspot.com is continuing their fanzine focus series looking at Delayed Blast Game Master number two. So a review of the Delayed Blast Game Master zine. And yeah, so check that out. Uh, I'm not sure if they did. Yeah, I think they did number one too, so you can check out both of these. Um, but anyway, kind of an OSR-ish zine. Oh, boy. I got the second vaccine shot today. And I'm not feeling any ill effects yet. Maybe just a slight headache, but I think that's more of just the headache of recording this episode so far with the microphone problems. You'll notice when I did the interview with Tyler, sounds fine. It's the same mic, same same laptop. Something to do with Anchor. I don't know what it is, but anyway. All right, so this isn't specifically zine-related, but it's comic-related. So it's close enough to where I wanted to put this up under the Zine Club heading. From the Rip Jagger Dojo, ripjaggerdojo.blogspot.com. They're, they're talking about this book, uh, The Secret History of Marvel Comics. And so, yeah, a lot of interesting tales. And there's a lot of interesting artwork that goes into this. So if you're interested in comics and kind of the history of comics, um, that's one to maybe take a look at. The Secret History of Marvel Comics. And then finally on the zines... Gabor Lux, a.k.a. Milan, has a new Echoes from Fummelhout zine out. This is over at beyondfummelhout.blogspot.com. Wanted to mention this for a couple reasons. One, I've been talking recently about how I've been able to resist, or been working on resisting, spending as much money on games. Because I buy stuff and I never use it, which is fine if you at least read it. But I don't only buy stuff, not use it. I buy stuff, don't use it, don't open it, don't look at it burn money. So I was pretty proud of myself. I was actually able to resist buying Greg Gillespie's latest mega dungeon, Duero Maze, uh, despite having even signed up for an alert, you know, through the Kickstarter to remind me I was able to resist it, which is a miracle, which is a miracle because I really wanted it, but I knew it was going to be like the last couple. I wasn't even going to really look at it. It's a sickness, as I mentioned before. But there are a couple things that I've bought recently. Not only because I'm only human, but because these were things that I really did want. One, the pre-order for Goodman Games Original Adventures Revisited. They're doing a two-volume slipcase version of the Temple of Elemental Evil. And if you're not familiar with Goodman Games OAR series, they'll do a complete reprint of the original module all cleaned up they'll have a lot of um, essays and history of, of the module you know a, no, a number of number of articles like that 
about the classic module. And then they do a full fifth edition conversion. And they usually add some new areas and stuff like that. They're really, really well done. Really well done. And so anyway, th these are ones that I definitely collect and have used. So um, had to buy that. And then the other thing I mentioned is I, I, I look at buying some zines because I still get something out of the zines. And, you know, I ask people during Zine Club, do you have a favorite zine? Well, Wizards, Mutants, and Laser, Wizards, Mutants, and Laser Pistols is maybe my favorite. I've got a few favorites, but one of, you know, up there, because I don't think they're doing any Wizards, Mutants, Wizards, Mutants, and Laser Pistols, at least recently. The last one was a few years ago, so uh, probably my favorite right now, or at least in the running, is the Echoes from Fummelhout uh, zines. Now, these can be a little bit expensive if you're buying them from the States, um, shipping-wise. You're better off trying to buy. If you buy a bunch at once, you get a better job. I think Gabor Lux is in Hungary. And so if you buy a few things at once, you're, you're better off. But I grab them the second they come out. Um, and they are just jam-packed. They often have three or four adventures in the... the these are not, you know, you know, a five, you know, a few words per page or whatever. These are dense, dense, and and taken all together. I mean, there is a ton of material in these zines, and they're all really creative. Gabor Lux is well known for being a, a very good adventure designer, so um, I'm looking forward to this one. And so this was one that I, uh, you know. There are some things I'm able to resist, but there are other things that there's no way you're going to keep me from buying, and that's this latest Echoes from Fummelhout, number eight, which is now available. Random Tables. All right, let's look at some random tables. This is a good one from Chris Tam from the Elf Maids and Octopi blog, elfmaidsandoctopi.blogspot.com. Uh, one of my favorites, kind of the, uh, the dark, evil prints of... Of random tables um, they've come up quite a bit on the program uh, hump day bloggerama hall of famer and they've been doing a series of posts recently talking about um, exploring underground caves and that kind of thing and so they've had a number of random tables they've done but they've this one caught my eye because I could have really used it I could have used it numerous times in the past, but I especially wish that I'd had this when I was running the night below because there are long stretches of cave in that game, in that uh, adventure. Miles, miles and miles of cave with nothing happening. Sure, it's got a couple random tables, but they're really just encounter tables. There's very little good flavor. It's just perfect for something like this. D100 Cave Trail Side Passage Follies. So you could use this, uh, I would think, even Descent to the Depths of the Earth, any underground game where, you know, people are going to be, your party's going to be on large stretches of underground cave. This gives a lot of little side passages, side caverns, side rooms, a D100 table full of flavor. For things that they can encounter while they're just wandering the caves. Perfect. Let's roll on this. Um, 
barely read my own die. 37. Uh, okay. So there's a little side passage with a little side room with a flaming pit with stairs down to bronze doors below. And a Freedy with a pet salamander lives there with lava folk servants. Guests with gifts get an audience. Bring a gift. Bring a gift. That's good advice no matter what, but especially if you're going to meet an Afridi. Let's see what else we find in these side passages. Uh, a giant stalactite on a high ceiling is an ancient watch post mostly hidden with chambers within. Oh, and I get to actually see what lives in the chamber. I like that. An ancient, a giant stalactite is hollowed out. Something's hiding in it. What is it? Ah, fish folk cult. Ah, the wily fish folk cult. And the ancient watch post. Giant stalactite. Anyway, a hundred of these. Great stuff as always from Chris Tam. Alright, speaking of great random tables, going over to see what Cackle Charm is up to at the Mance Gaming. Themancegaming.blogspot.com. 20 themes. 20 things that come flying down spooky hallways at you. <laughs> Just a great title by itself. 20 things that come flying down spooky hallways at you. What is flying down the spooky hallway at me? Uh, uh, a generic looking ghost person floating gives a dire warning, fades away with echoing moans. It's a generic looking ghost person. All right, let's do one more of these. What is flying down the hallway at me? A giant hand or grasping tentacle slams down, then slinks away into darkness. So 20 of these, 20 things that come flying down spooky hallways at you. Check it out. Hump day bloggerama. I actually really like recording on my phone. That's the way I did it for a while. Um, it's easy. I really like it, but of course the sound is not as good on this new phone. So um, anyway. Let's get into some blog stuff. So a blogger extraordinaire, uh, Dan Collins and Jason Siegel from Delta's D&D Hotspot and Jason's game blog, I mean Paul's game blog, um, they also do the Wandering DMs YouTube channel, which is, I've kind of, I, I, I mentioned this a while back, I've been favoriting pretty much, you know, a lot of different RPG channels over the years just kind of clicking them in my favorite because i wasn't going to watch it then i was going to look at it later went back through and cut a lot of it out one of the few that i kept uh, under my favorites is wandering dms because they do a lot of good stuff and i enjoy their blogs and I, I enjoy their videos great interview with legendary designer janelle jacques and um if you're not familiar uh janelle's work some of the seminal adventures from back in the heyday of Judges Guild before um, before the Bledsoe, you know, the younger Bledsoe ran the uh, ran the company basically into the dirt. Uh, Caverns of Thracia, Dark Tower, um, early work with Zines with the Dungeoneer, um, some of the 
first dungeons really published. Um, well known for the incredible creative layout of the dungeons and the passages and the, the way they all, you know, so, and, and has done a lot of other stuff, talented artist as well. So interview over there, um, at wandering DMS with Janelle Jacques definitely one to check out. So I've got that, uh, just, I've got the YouTube video embedded into the post over at the thought Eater blog. And I didn't have the rest of these opened up. I should have. See, I think most of them I can talk about without opening the posts. But let's get them open real quick. All right, so at the Black Gate blog, blackgate.com, Adventures in Fantasy Literature, I've brought up this, this blog uh, pretty frequently. Really, really nice. They some mostly will talk about, you know, fantasy novels and kind of historical retrospective posts, but sometimes they'll tie into gaming, and that's what this one is. Video game history. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons for Intellivision. Remember the Intellivision? There was the Atari 2600. This is the way I perceived it. There was Atari 2600, which is what I had which seems to, you know, which won the battle basically back then. But then there was also Intellivision, and then there was also ColecoVision. I always wanted the ColecoVision because they had the cool Nintendo games back then. And the graphics looked the best. But for whatever reason, at least in my area, the ColecoVision never caught on. I only got to play on one once. I only had one friend that ever even had the ColecoVision, and I only went over their house and played on it once. Now, another person I knew had the Intellivision, but it had a, let's just call it a wonky controller that was nowhere near as much fun. Wasn't, you know, there was no joystick. So it was not something, you know, the people I knew that had one didn't even play it. And it was really, you know, let's play the Atari. Anyway, this is looking back at the AD&D game for, Intellivi uh, for Intellivision. And it talks a little bit about the gameplay <clears throat> has some images and stuff like that. So a retrospective of the old Intellivision Advanced Dungeons and Dragons game. Check that out. That's at blackgate.com. Another cool retrospective post from James Malachewski over at Grognardia. The Free City of Haven. Now I purchased this a while back because I was just so curious by uh, curious about it. I had read about it and I liked the uh, the kind of almost childlike art on the cover. This is by Game Lords, who ended up doing, if somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but they did like the Thieves World um, uh, stuff. The, the Thieves, uh, uh, no, not Thieves World, Thieves Guild game. Um, anyway, uh, they also have a later edition of the Free City of Haven, which you may even still be able to buy. I bought mine just a few years ago, and the person that still sells this stuff was selling them for just the, uh, you know, just the original list price. But this is the going back to the original one, Free City of Haven, and this is kind of in the ballpark of City State of the Invincible Overlord, that sort of thing, where it's a just massive city uh, with some maps, and then you know just lots of lists of uh, stores and everything else and personalities and there's great random tables and stuff so 
Um, it's also was interestingly, it's not bound. It was, it, it's, you know, three hole punched. So I've got mine like in a, in a, in a binder and everything. It was in a plastic bag already punched for you with the maps as well. So anyway, this is a really cool product. It's not cheap. If you can find the second edition, it's not that much different and it's actually a box set. And you could probably find that a lot cheaper. Um, but if you, you know, if you're looking for this, I forget what I bought it for exactly, but it was not cheap, but it was worth having. This is a, a cool piece of history. So if you've never seen the free city of Haven, don't know anything about it, check it out. Uh, looks like it came out back in 1981. So, uh, cool post at Trollbones, trollbones.blogspot.com. The many returns of Gamma World. Basically, they've been getting into Gamma World, and that has led them... This is E.T. Smith's blog. They've been getting into Gamma World, which has led them to check out the various... The myriad editions of Gamma World and the, permu the different permutations of the rules that have existed and the kind of convoluted, strange kind of history of it. So, um, an interesting post about like the history of Gamma World and a little bit about all the different editions and everything else that they've discovered as they've gotten into the game. So that is over at trollbones.blogspot.com. Uh, this is neat. This is at National Geographic, nationalgeographic.com. How role-playing games can give your kid a mental health boost. RPGs are making a comeback, helping children deal with the pandemic. Mental health is important. Gaming, you know, forget the pan, you know, don't forget the pandemic. No, don't forget the pandemic. But pandemic aside, gaming is good for children. It's good for mental health, not only for kids, but for everybody, I think. So anyway, cool post. How role-playing games can give your kid a mental health boost at National Geographic. I've been talking about Wayne's books off and on. I think they came up last week. Wayne over at Wayne's books, if you got you know, something hard to find you're looking for, uh, and you're, you know, Amazon doesn't have it. Can't find it at eBay. Don't forget to check out Wayne's books, waynesbooks.games painted miniatures, Indiana Jones RPG from 1984. Now I, I know that the TSR Indiana Jones game never really caught on primarily because, you know, there was no character creation. If I'm remembering correctly, gosh, I think I am though. And it was like, you know, just pre-made. So there's no character creation. So it's like, okay, I get to be Indiana Jones. So somebody takes Indiana Jones and it's like, okay, I guess I'm going to be Sala, you know, or, or the guy that flew the plane at the beginning that had snakes in the plane that nobody can remember their name. You know, there's only, if only one person could play Indiana Jones, kind of the rest of everybody else is maybe not got the most, uh, you know, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's kind of the, the, the reason they call the game is the adventures of Indiana Jones. It needed character creation. That all being said there, I didn't realize that there were minis made for this game. And so, uh, Wayne has got their hands on a box of these minis and has some cool pictures of them. Uh, and they're, you know, they're painted, I guess they came out unpainted, but you know, it's got, uh, taught i didn't even know the guy's name you know the 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 nazi that gets his hand burnt by the medallion his name's tot i never even knew that <laughs> um 
but anyway, if you want to look at these old these old Indiana Jones, <laughs> these old Indiana Jones minis, check it out. And then finally, uh, people are talking about Troika Fest. Uh, first, Chase Carter at the Dicebreaker site, dicebreaker.com, and then Modoc over at Rolling Box Cars. Troika Fest. Now, this is running now, apparently, from the 5th through the 11th, inviting new groups and designers to join the Tabletop's RPG community in their weird and wacky sandbox. Actual play streams, a game jam, and a launch of a new supplement marks some of the planned events. So I've got uh, a couple links over here to give you uh, an idea about what's going on with Troika Fest. Free stuff. All right, let's look at some free stuff. You know it was coming. Hodag RPG has done another pamphlet game. Who is the toughest man in Wisconsin? Get ready to punch, kick, and macho your way to the top with who is the toughest man in Wisconsin. Hodag, of course, on a mission. 52 games in 52 weeks. Can Hodag do it? We will be here to download the games for free and find out. Lester's Ramble comes up a lot. Vance A over there. I didn't notice a ton of free stuff this week. Seems like the last couple of weeks. But this week I, I missed, you know, I missed some of them. I missed some of my time, um, but it is what it is. I still found some good stuff. Lester's Ramble, Vance A, The Village of Treacle, free PDF. Matt, uh, is this a Matt Jackson map? I'm not sure if this one is a Matt Jackson map. Could be, not sure. But anyway, another a free another free adventure from Vance A. Looks good. And then this was cool. Tomas Elise over at the Vorpal Mace blog, vorpalmace.blogspot.com. Going back and taking a look at the Delving Deeper box set. Delving Deeper, a retro clone of OD&D. And this was from some years ago. You're not going to be able to find this box set anywhere. But it was a cool look back at it. And the Delving Deeper rules are actually really good. You can buy it really cheaply in like a digest form from Lulu, but it is also available as a free download. So I've got a link over to the Immersive Inc. forum, which is the publisher, one of the publishers behind Delving, Delving Deeper. And you can download that, you know, download the PDFs and stuff for free. So I thought, hey, it's a cool retrospective look at a retro clone kind of like one of the first wave retro clones pretty much. And, uh, you can also download it for free. And I figure there might be some listeners out there that maybe have not checked this one out. You know, it's all, uh, it's all BX these days. Right. So check that out. And then this was really cool over at itch.io. There was a 24 hour misery jam. And this was for Mork Borg. This shows you how popular this game is because it was just a 24-hour jam and there still ended up being, what, that's 12, 16, well over 40 supplements. And they all look, they all appear to be free. 40 different little supplements within 24 hours uploaded, uploaded for Mork Borg. Probably use them for just about anything. A lot of them don't appear to be too much, you know, heavy on the crunch. 
So um, I was just impressed that they were able to put up a jam for 24 hours and have uh, like over 40 submissions. But the artwork and art design on these, some people must have had these ready to go. But um, uh, anyway, a bunch of uh, stuff to download from Workborg for free. Uh, 46 entries, it says, yeah, within 24 hours. So, yeah, more the, the Morkborg train is not stopping yet. The final topic. All right, so for the final topic, I wanted to talk a little bit about language, different languages in role-playing games. This was prompted from a great post over at Noise Sand Signal noisesandsignal.blogspot.com from Kiana over there. I love this post. They're talking about common language, the common, you know, from D&D, common, acting like as a virus. And they talk a little bit about languages. They mention that English is their third language, which is incredible incredible to me to begin with. They're a very gifted writer and have a great command of English. Uh, so to me, that's impressive, having had some fledgling attempts at learning other languages myself. Uh, so, but um, they, take, they talk about how common doesn't act like a real world language in any way. It's become the default and only language of many different cultural groups, of many divided and different political powers, even monsters that don't have the physical capability to actually speak a language. <laughs> um, and they talk about how you know, normally languages change over time with distance, but that common becomes even more absurd uh, when you look at things like Planscape, where beings from different worlds and planes of existence speak the same common language just fine. It's common everywhere, they say, and the common just is, as a cohesive and unchangeable whole, unnaturally resilient to being anything else but the common. Then they kind of start talking about it, it almost behaves as a virus. Um, let's see what they say here. Uh, it becomes self-propagated, self-sustained, a monolithic mnemonic entity, uh, quickly replacing in-world languages as soon as it is introduced, infecting the local populace. It's too darn inconvenient not to use common, and thus local languages and dialects die within a generation or two, replaced by it. Um, uh, or what's something else they say? Uh, they talk about like it kind of a it, its effect on magic. You know, it's distilled magic down, and and, lim and basically limited magic as a result of it all being, uh, you know, the, being the only language used. And then they say you can treat common not only as a virus but as an eldritch god, a formless being propagating through the minds of mortals and immortals alike influencing their ways to express themselves and thus affecting the world to its liking which i loved and it reminded me of a horror movie i saw called pontypool uh, a while back and i think it's based on a novel which i bet the novel is better than the movie but the, the 
something somehow with the language it ends up acting like a virus and people go mad and end up attacking each other and everything uh based on uh, a virus spreading through the la- you know through the english language which was kind of a similar idea so i love the ideas with common there and it got me thinking about the use of language in games now D is kind of its own thing with that common because when i'm playing another game you know, language can be much more important. I think, I tend to think in terms of Call of Cthulhu a lot because it's like my favorite game. But language skills are really important in that because you may be going to read an old old book. And if you find an old Russian book on the old, you know, on the, the Cthulhu mythos or whatever, and it's in Russian, you're not going to be able to read it unless you have the ability to read Russian. So it's always important for certain investigators to take some skills at least maybe a little French, at least areas where you know that the, the campaign might be traveling and what have you. Also in sci-fi, you know, pl- things like whatever, Planescape notwithstanding, uh, it can be important in other games too. Uh, you know, I especially see a love of language in, in Star Trek. You know, there are people that actually can speak Klingon. You know, they have a, they've actually, you know, fleshed out the entire language with that. Um, and Star Wars to some extent as well, you know, you have language, you know, people that can even speak droid, you know, there are certain characters and everything that are not going to speak any sort of common language. Although there is that sort of common language running through Star Star Wars as well. But it made me think about, uh, past D and D games, uh, that I've played or been a part of ran, and I've never really given much emphasis to language. It seems like the most, the language comes up the most really during character creation and then maybe not so much ever again. Um, You know, I I don't know if that's different for somebody else, but I think that de-emphasizing common uh, in a campaign would, would, would be interesting. I have played a feral, you know, wild boy kind of character before i think it was named chi chi that did not you know could not speak common it said maybe a couple of things you know like chi chi love tila you know whatever you know it maybe said that it loved someone or something but it was mostly just kind of a non-verbal feral um almost like a an an, an alley cat or something that, that followed the party around um but of course, it understood common being spoken. So I just thought I would, first of all, turn some eyes towards this post because I thought it was really interesting. But it points to whether you use it to some kind of extreme as a virus or whatever. It points to the idea that maybe there are some ways you can use language that are closer to you know, real world um, in your D&D game that... that might enrich the experience it really is used more for uh, for um um convenience sake and of course you want the party to be able to communicate you know to some extent with each other but as they're traveling around the far reaches and these far areas and everything um uh, forcing the players to come up with alternative communication methods 
certainly there are some spells and everything, but you know, it's something to play with, something to think about. So I thought I'd ask the question, if anybody wants to call in, you can call into the show and leave a message by going to anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. If you have an interesting time or interesting use of language in your game, be it D&D, be it something else, any thoughts on the use of language or the, the, the lack of uh, imagination of using languages in RPGs, I'd love to hear it. So anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. Outro. All right. So that is the show for this week. I apologize again for the audio quality. I will try to figure out something over the week. I don't really know what I can do because apparently it is not my microphone, which <clears throat> worked fine recording on discord, but I'm not going back to trying to record the podcast on discord and exporting it back and forth. I'm just not going to do that. It's too much time. This takes too much time as it is. I can't add another couple of hours onto it, but I will try to figure it out. Maybe switch back to the other computer. Maybe like uh, an old Nintendo. Maybe, you know, blow on something. You know, blow on it. See if that works. I don't know. But I am very thankful to Tyler Crumrine for coming by and joining the club. Remember to check out that Possible Worlds Kickstarter. It really does look cool. A lot of neat artists working on that and cool game ideas. So thanks again, Tyler. Good luck with that. I appreciate the calls from Jason and Goblin's Henchman. Really appreciate y'all. Thanks for making the show better. I am still pushing this Patreon. I'm going to keep doing it. Patreon.com forward slash Thought Eater. If you like the show, it's only a dollar a month. One dollar a month. Do it. Patreon.com forward slash Thought Eater. Uh, remember, you can leave a message for the show if you want to talk about the final topic, language and games, or anything else. Anchor.fm forward slash Thought Eater. Under the outro tab, as always, I have a few funny little memes and that kind of thing for you. Other than that, I should be back to normal on Friday uh, with a five-minute Friday. Coming up on 200 episodes, so trying to think of... I don't know if I'll do anything special, but I will definitely mention it. Coming up on 200 episodes, so coming up on a, uh, on a milestone here for the program. So I am really thankful... To all the people that have been listening to the show, many of y'all since near the beginning. So whether you're a new listener or a long-time listener, thanks for helping me get this far. And I think that's it. Logan, let's go. Sickly platypus, a psychic grenade. Zeroing in on your mental trade. Gonna help you escape from the grind. Thought eater gonna blow your mind.